God is glorious in His saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast. My name is Dr. Darren Ong, recording from Sepang in Malaysia. In this podcast, we explore the lives of the Christian saints, from the Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox traditions. Today, we commemorate St. Willibrod, Bishop of Utrecht, and Apostle to the Frisians. Willibrod was born around the year 658 to a pious Anglo-Saxon family from the Northumbria region of England. His father, Wilgils, was especially devout and in fact sought after God as a hermit for a time. We read an account of Willibrod's birth and early childhood by Alcuin. The translation we use is by C.H. Talbot. Now, in order to relate more fully the facts concerning Willibrod's birth and recall the signs which show that even whilst he was in his mother's womb, he was chosen by God, I shall return to the point where I began. Just as the most holy forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ, Blessed John the Baptist, was sanctified in his mother's womb and preceded Christ, as the morning star precedes the sun, and as the gospel tells us, was born of devout parents in order to bring salvation to many. So likewise, Willibrod, begotten for the salvation of many, was born of devout parents. Wilgills, the venerable man, entered upon the state of matrimony for the sole purpose of bringing into the world a child who should benefit many peoples. Thus it was that his wife, mother of holy Willibrod, beheld at dead of night whilst she slept a heavenly vision. It seemed to her as if she saw in the sky the new moon, which, as she watched, slowly increased until it reached the size of the full moon. Whilst she was gazing intently upon it, it fell swiftly into her mouth, and when she had swallowed it, her bosom was suffused with light. Filled with fear, she awoke at once and went to recount the dream to a holy priest, to ask her whether during the night on which the vision came to her, she had known her husband in the customary way. When she assented, he replied as follows, The moon which you saw, changing from small to great, is the sun whom you conceived on that night. He will disperse the murky darkness of error with the light of truth, and wherever he goes, he will carry with him a heavenly splendor and display the full moon of his perfection. By the brightness of his fame and the beauty of his life, he will attract to himself the eyes of multitudes. This interpretation of the dream was borne out by the actual course of events. When her time was come, the woman bore a son, and at his baptism his father gave him the name of Willibrod. As soon as the child had reached the age of reason, 
his father gave him to the church at Ripon to be instructed by the brethren there in religious pursuits and sacred learning, so that living in a place where he could see nothing but what was virtuous and hear nothing but what was holy, his tender age should be strengthened by sound training and discipline. From his earliest years, divine grace enabled him to grow in intelligence and in strength of character, at least as far as was possible at such an age, so that it seemed as if in our day there had been born another Samuel, of whom it was said, the boy grew up and advanced in favour both with God and with men. Hence, in the monastery of Ripon, the youth who was to prove a blessing to many received the clerical tonsure and made his profession as a monk and attained along with the other youths of that holy and sacred monastery. He was inferior to none in fervour, humility and zeal for study. In fact, this highly gifted boy made such progress as the days went by that the development of his intelligence and character so outstripped his tender years that his small and delicate frame harbored the wisdom of ripe old age. Willibrod would travel to Ireland for his education at the age of 20. Ireland was at this time a thriving centre of Christian education. He spent 13 years there, and then felt called to leave Ireland to preach the gospel to the pagan peoples of continental Europe. He decided to head to Frisia, which is a region in the Netherlands today. The Anglo-Saxons and Frisians have close cultural links. Even today, it is possible for modern English speakers to understand somewhat a conversation spoken in the modern Frisian language. The Frisians were ruled by a pagan king called Radbud, and were enemies of the neighbouring Franks, who were Christians. The ruler of the Franks, Pepin, was a godly man, who was impressed with Willibrod and asked him to take up the post of the Bishop of Utrecht. We return to Alcuin for an account of Willibrod's first travels to Frisia. Accordingly, in the 33rd year of his age, the fervour of his faith had reached such an intensity that he considered it of little value to labour at his own sanctification, unless he could preach the gospel to others and bring some benefit to them. He had heard that in the northern regions of the world, the harvest was great, but the labourers few. Thus it was that, in fulfilment of the dream which his mother stated she had seen, Willibrod, fully aware of his own purpose, but ignorant as yet of divine preordination, decided to sail for those parts, and if God so willed, to bring the light of the gospel message to those people who through unbelief had not been stirred by its warmth. So he embarked on a ship, taking with him eleven others who shared his enthusiasm for the faith. Some of these afterwards gained the martyr's crown through their constancy in preaching the gospel. 
Others were later to become bishops and, after their labours in the holy work of preaching, have since gone to their rest in peace. So the man of God, accompanied by his brethren, as we have already said, set sail, and after a successful crossing, they moored their ships at the mouth of the Rhine. Then, after they had taken some refreshment, they set out for the castle of Utrecht, which lies on the bank of the river, where, some years afterwards, when by divine favour the faith had increased, Willebrod placed the seat of his bishopric. But as the Frisian people, among whom the fort was situated, and Radbot, their king, still defiled themselves by pagan practices, the man of God thought it wiser to set out for Francia and visit Pippin, the king of that country, a man of immense energy, successful in war, and of high moral character. The duke received him with every mark of respect, and as he was unwilling that he and his people should lose the services of so eminent a scholar, he made over to him certain localities within the boundaries of his own realm, where he could uproot idolatrous practices, teach the newly converted people, and so fulfill the command of the prophet, drive a new pharaoh, and so no longer among the briars. After the man of God had systematically visited several localities and carried out the task of evangelization, and when the seed of life watered by the dews of heavenly grace had, through his preaching, borne abundant fruit in many hearts, the aforesaid king of the Franks, highly pleased at Willebrod's burning zeal, and the extraordinary growth of the Christian faith, and having in view the still greater propagation of religion, thought it wise to send him to Rome, in order that he might be consecrated bishop by Pope Sergius, one of the holiest men of that time. Thus, after receiving the apostolic blessing and mandate, and being filled with greater confidence as the Pope's emissary, he would return to preach the gospel with even greater vigour, according to the words of the Apostle, How shall they preach unless they are sent? But when the king tried to persuade the man of God to do this, he was met by a refusal. Willebrod said that he was not worthy to wield such great authority, and after enumerating the qualities which St. Paul mentioned to Timothy, his spiritual son, as being essential for a bishop, asserted that he fell far short of such virtues. On his side, the king solemnly urged what the man of God had already humbly declined. At length, moved by the unanimous agreement of his companions, and what is of more importance constrained by the divine will, Willebrod acquiesced, anxious to submit to the counsel of many, rather than obstinately to follow his own will. Accordingly, he set out for Rome with a distinguished company, bearing gifts appropriate to the dignity of the Pope. St. Willibrod would make two trips to Rome to accept the position of Bishop of Utrecht and to bring back holy relics. His consecration as bishop would happen in the year 695. 
several churches in the historical region of Frisia still preserve the relics brought back from Rome by Willibrod. We read an account of St. Willibrod's journeys to Rome from the English historian Bede. At their first coming into Frisland, as soon as Willibrod found he had leave given him by the prince to preach, he made haste to Rome, where Pope Sergius then presided over the apostolic see, that he might undertake the desired work of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles with his license and blessing, and hoping to receive of him some relics of the blessed apostles and martyrs of Christ, to the end that when he destroyed the idols, and erected churches in the nation to which he preached, he might have the relics of saints at hand to put into them, and having deposited them there, might accordingly dedicate those places to the honour of each of the saints whose relics they were. He was also desirous there to learn or to receive from thence many other things which so great a work required. Having obtained all that he wanted, he returned to preach. When they who went over had spent some years teaching in Frisland, Pepin, with the consent of them all, sent the venerable Willibrod to Rome, where Sergius was still Pope, desiring that he might be consecrated Archbishop over the nation of the Frisians, which was accordingly done in the year of our Lord's Incarnation 696. He was consecrated in the church of the Holy Martyr Cecilia on her feast day, the Pope gave him the name of Clement and sent him back to his bishopric 14 days after his arrival at Rome. Pepin gave him a place for his episcopal see. In his famous castle, which in the ancient language of those people is called Wilterberg, that is the town of the Wilts, but in the French tongue, Utrecht. The most reverend prelate, having built a church there and preaching the word of faith far and near, drew many from their errors and erected several churches and monasteries. St. Willibrod was an effective and dedicated teacher and preacher. He even went outside the borders of the Frankish kingdom, which led to a confrontation with the pagan Frisian king, Radbert. We read here Alcuin's account of the meeting between Willibrod and Radbert. The man of God tried also to propagate the gospel teaching outside the boundaries of the Frankish kingdom. He had the boldness to present himself at the court of Radbert, at that time king of the Frisians, and like his subjects a pagan. Wherever he travelled, he proclaimed the word of God without fear. But though the Frisian king received the man of God in a kind and humble spirit, his heart was hardened against the word of life. So when the man of God saw that his efforts were of no avail, he turned his missionary course towards the fierce tribes of the Danes. At that time, so we are told, the Danish ruler was Ongendus, a man more savage than any wild beast and harder than stone, who, nevertheless, through divine intervention, received the herald of truth with every mark of honour 
But when the latter found that the people were steeped in evil practices, abandoned to idolatry, and indifferent to any hope of a better life, he chose thirty boys from among them and hastily returned with them to the chosen people of the Franks. On the journey, he instructed the youths in the faith and baptized them, so that if they perish from the long sea voyage or through the ambushes of the savage dwellers of those parts, he should suffer no loss in their regard. In this way, he desired to anticipate the craft of the devil and to strengthen these redeemed souls by the sacraments of the Lord. Now whilst this energetic preacher of the word was pursuing his journey, he came to a certain island on the boundary between the Frisians and the Danes, which the people of those parts call Forsetland after a god named Forsete, whom they worship and whose temples stood there. This place was held by the pagans in such great awe that none of the natives would venture to meddle with any of the cattle that fed there, nor with anything else. Nor there they draw water from the spring that bubbled up there except in complete silence. On this island, the man of God was driven ashore by a storm and waited for some days until the gale died down and fair weather made it possible to set sail again. He set little store by the superstitious sacredness ascribed to the spot or by the savage cruelty of the king, who was accustomed to condemn violators of the sacred objects to the most cruel death. Willebrod baptized three persons in the fountain in the name of the Blessed Trinity and gave orders that some of the cattle should be slaughtered as food for his company. When the pagans saw this, they expected that the strangers would become mad or struck with sudden death. Noticing, however, that they suffered no harm, the pagans, terror-stricken and astounded, reported to the king what they had witnessed. The king was roused to intense fury and had a mind to avenge on the priests of the living god the insults which had been offered to his deities. For three whole days, he cast lots three times every day to find out who should die. But as the true god protected his own servants, the lots of death never fell upon Willebrod, nor upon any of his company, except in the case of one of the party, who thus won the martyr's crown. The holy man was then summoned before the king, and severely upbraided for having violated the king's sanctuary and offered insult to his god. With unruffled calmness, the preacher of the gospel replied, The object of your worship, O king, is not a god but a devil, and he holds you ensnared in rank falsehood in order that he may deliver your soul to eternal fire. For there is no god but one who created heaven and earth, the seas and all that is in them, and those who worship him in true faith will possess eternal life. As his servant, I call upon you this day to renounce the empty and inveterate errors to which your forebears have given their assent, and to believe in the one Almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized in the fountain of life, and wash away all your sins, so that forsaking all wickedness and unrighteousness, you may henceforth live as a new man in temperance, justice, and holiness. 
If you do this, you will enjoy everlasting glory with God and his saints. But if you spurn me, who set before you the way of life, be assured that with the devil whom you obey, you will suffer unending punishment and the flames of hell. At this the king was astonished and replied, It is clear to me that my threats leave you unmoved, and that your words are uncompromising as your deeds. But although he would not believe the preaching of the truth, he sent back Willibrod with all honour to Pippin, king of the Franks. St. Willibrod was a greatly effective missionary, bringing many pagans to the faith. However, in the year 714, Pippin died, and King Rudbud took advantage and captured Utrecht, killing priests and missionaries and forcing St. Willibrod to flee. A few years later, Pippin's son and successor as the ruler of the Franks, Charles Martel, was able to defeat Radbert and gain control of Frisia, which allowed Willibrod to resume his ministry. Willibrod died in the year 739 at the age of 81 and was buried in a monastery at Actonot, which he had built. He was quickly recognized as a saint and is celebrated on November 7th in the saints' calendars of the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Eastern Orthodox churches. Archpriest Andrew Phillips, rector of St. John of Shanghai Orthodox Church in Essex, England, tells us four lessons from Willibrod's life. This is from a short biography Father Andrew wrote about the saint. Firstly, we can see that for over 30 years, Willibrod had been preparing, mainly unconsciously, for his mission. Here we have a sense of destiny. In his mission to the Frisians, St. Willibrod fulfilled the mission that God had put in his soul. In this we achieve nothing if we are not thoroughly prepared. This is our first lesson, and we can see its practical application. Inasmuch as before baptizing the Frisians, Willibrod always preached to them, instructing them, he prepared the ground, sowing before harvesting. Secondly, we can see in St. Willibrod the incarnational principle of the practical and the spiritual. And in fact, these are the two sides of the same coin. In him, we can see the English and the Irish, the Roman organizer and the Egyptian monk. For example, he established an operational headquarters in Roman Utrecht but he also operated out of a spiritual base in his beloved monastery of Actonot. St. Willibrod shows us that although we are very much in the world, we are still not of it. And all those who deny this principle of balance, taking only one side and not the other, come to grief and misfortune. Thirdly, we can see through the life of the saint that God protects his workers. Time and again, St. Willibrod was under threat in dangerous circumstances. He worked under Frankish patronage among the Franks' national enemies. He worked to destroy the old pagan religion and replace it with the new Christian faith. Each time that threats came, he did not suffer, but his enemies did. 
He was fearless because he had faith. And what do we have to fear? The worst thing that can happen to us is death, and that for Christians means paradise. Fourthly and finally, we see the patience of the saint. He thought in the long term, in terms of generations. Following the pagan reaction in the years 714 and 715, it seemed as though 25 years of work had been in vain. All was lost. However, the saint returned and began again. God was to give him another 25 years and more helpers to continue. Ultimately, we can say that he who loses is he who does not persevere, but gives up. St. Willibrod did not give up, and therefore he won the battle. This is the great lesson to us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints Podcast. Look for the Christian Saints Podcast page on Facebook or Instagram, or find us on Twitter at podcast underscore saints. All music in this episode was composed by my good friend, James John Marks of Generative Sounds. Please check out his music at generativesoundsjjm.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, so more people can find the Christian Saints podcast and be blessed by these stories of God's saints. Let us end with the Anglican Collect for St. Willibrod's Feast Day. O God, who didst vouchsafe to send thy blessed St. Willibrod to preach thy glory to the Gentiles, we humbly pray thee that by his merits and intercession we may both see and know the things which we ought to do, and by thy mercy be enabled to perform the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with thee and thy same Spirit, one God, for ever and ever. Amen.